so, so good. Father, we do. We give glory and honor and power to you this day. Lord, as we, we think about your church that you're building, that the gates of hell would never prevail against it, Lord. We are on mission with you to build your church. And Father, we pray today that you would receive all glory and honor and power in this place, Lord, for you are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Church, welcome again this morning to Christ Church. If you're online or you're with us in person, I'm Jeremy. If we haven't met, and I'm on staff here as one of the pastors, it's great to be uh, able to bring God's word to you this morning. Pastor Brian is up in Traverse City with one of our sister churches uh, preaching up there. So we have been working our way through uh, a full study of the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bibles, go over to Acts chapter 12, and we're going to be reading verses 20 to 25 today in Acts 12. Last week, we started um, Acts chapter 12. Today, we're going to conclude it. Now, in our study of the book of Acts, we're in a subseries called Missional Gospel on the Move. That the gospel, the mission of the church, like we just read, Jesus said that he would build his church the gates of hell will, would never prevail against it. And that's what we're talking about today, about how we are called to be missional and the gospel is on the move. Today's specific title is Removing Roadblocks. And you'll see in a little bit here why uh, that is the title of the message today. So over in Acts chapter 12, let me give you a quick recap. Herod, um, who's the king, he's, he's a, an appointed king by the Roman government, has um, had James the apostle put to death and imprisoned Peter and was intending to kill Peter as well. But God miraculously, supernaturally delivered Peter, freed him from prison. And, uh, and it caused quite an uproar to where all of the guards who were in charge of guarding Peter, they were put to death. That was kind of the rule of the day was your life for his. And, uh, and it's, it's quite the scene. Now, when you think of Herod, um, you might be thinking like, man, I keep seeing that name. If you're reading scripture, Herod's here and Herod's there. And they seem to be in different time places. Well, there's a reason for that because Herod is not one guy. Herod is the title of, of the king. It was a family. It was kind of a dynasty of kings. So the first Herod mentioned in scripture is Herod the Great. He was the original um, Herod. He, he was the one in the Christmas story, if you remember. The wise men went to Herod and Herod said, I want you to go find out, find, find the, the boy and I want you to come back and let me know where he is so that I can go worship him. And uh, the wise men were tipped off that it wasn't so much that he wanted to go worship him but that he wanted to kill him Jesus, because he was a threat to his throne. That was Herod the Great. So when Herod found out, Herod the Great found out that the wise men had avoided him and outwitted him, what did he do? He had every baby boy under the age of two slaughtered in the region. Herod the Great. Sounds like a really nice guy, right? Herod the Great has three sons, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Herod Philip. Now, Herod Antipas was the one who had John the Baptist killed. Now, if you remember this Herod, this is the Herod who, who divorced his wife and married his brother's wife, Herodias. Herodias. And so, and John the Baptist stood up and goes, he condemned it, he spoke against it, and Herod Antipas killed him for that. Now, Herodias' nephew, this is a weird tangled web, I know, Herodias' nephew is Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa I, that's the Herod we're talking about in this passage today. So kind of a tangled web of, of this, this dynasty of kings, these Herods, that's who we're talking about. Now, Herod Agrippa II, mentioned in Scripture, we'll see later on, he's the Herod who Paul stood before as he was making his appeal to Caesar. He was the Herod who goes, Paul, you've almost convinced me to become a Christian. So when you see Herod, it's talking about various different um, kings named Herod, okay? So again, the church now, they're coming off, they're grieving the loss of James the apostle, 
but they're also celebrating the miraculous supernatural release of Peter. And, and so Herod at this time, because of all the uproar, it's likely he's like, I'm just gonna get out of Dodge. And he takes off from Judea and he goes up to Caesarea. Now Caesarea is a, is a coast, it's a port city on the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, we're gonna kind of pick up the story here and you'll see this will make a little more sense as we go along. So look here in verse 20, Acts chapter 12, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Now we don't quite know what happened, what was he upset about, what was he angry about, but, but we know that he was upset with these people of Tyre and Sidon. And if you remember back in chapter 11, there was a famine. Now we don't know if the famine was still going on, but for sure the after effects of it were being felt. So food was, was scarce and it was, it was very important. You can understand that the people of Tyre and Sidon were in a dire situation. This was like do or die, this was life and death for them. And Herod, for whatever reason, is, is cutting off the food supply and they're pleading with him, don't do this. And this, this is where the story begins to get a little crazy. But So they, they go to, um, to Blastus, he's the king's chamberlain. Now, a chamberlain is uh, someone who was a personal aide, a personal attendant to the king. Chamberlain comes from the word chamber, meaning that he watched over, he cared for the king's chambers or his home. He was like his personal housekeeper, personal like uh, attendant. That's who Blastus was. And so the, the people of Tyre and Sidon, they're like, well, we can't get to Herod, so we're gonna go to the guy who's got Herod's ear and we're gonna try to influence the influencer. So that's, that's what's going on here. Now look at, look at what it says here in, uh, in verse 21. He's in Caesarea now. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to, him, to them. Now, he's in Caesarea, and likely he's in the Hippodrome in Caesarea. This is a picture of what that would look like right on the Mediterranean seacoast. It was an oval-shaped arena. It would have been uh, awe-inspiring, a beautiful setting. Try to picture yourself there. And Herod is sitting in the place of honor. He's sitting on the throne, and on this throne would have been a place where he would have judged in a trial or he would have awarded an athlete if it had been um, a sporting event in the arena. So Herod is sitting on the throne. It says he put on his, his royal clothing. Now, it's, it's interesting, if you're a student of history or you want to know more about the Bible, there's a man named Josephus who was a Jewish historian. And Josephus um, worked with the Roman government and he was recording history and he actually has an account of this very event. And when you read Josephus's account of, of um, Acts 12 and you put it together with Luke's, it, be, it begins to kind of fill in some of the detail. Uh, Josephus says that when Herod put on his royal robes, his clothing that day was actually made of silver. It was woven in silver so that he would have been reflecting like a mirror. He would have been reflecting the sun. And he came out at just the right time so that the sun would hit him and, and would kind of emanate out on the people. He knew exactly what he was doing. He puts on his royal robes, he sits on the throne, and he's like, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak. And, and look what happens here in verse 22. And people, the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. A little crazy. Why would they be saying that? Well, what they're trying to do, clearly, is they're trying to regain Herod's favor. They're like, we, we know that this guy's a little bit of a glory hog, so if we just kind of worship him and give him what he wants and, and start telling him that he's a God, then maybe he'll, he'll release his grip a little bit and, and give us our food back. They were worshiping and glorifying a man which was a severe mistake. 
flattery. This is, you know what flattery is. Flattery is when you're, you're kind of buttering somebody up because you want something from them. You're trying to get something from them. That's what they're doing. They're, they're worshiping. And you can picture the scene now. Herod, the light reflecting off, if, if you were to look at him, it would almost look like just a reflection of the sun. And they're chanting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Kind of a dumb mistake. Look what it says in verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because, because why he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That's kind of a gross picture, right? Luke doesn't have as much detail. When you put this together with the account that Josephus records of this event, it says that he, he was, when, when they did the autopsy, that they, they, they cut him open and he, he was infested with these roundworms. It was disgusting. Luke says that immediately the Lord struck him. Likely what happened was these roundworms, what they do is they form a cyst in someone's intestines and that cyst burst and he probably doubled over in pain. As you read Josephus' account, this is kind of what it seems like. He doubles over in pain and it shows very clearly that he is no God at all. God's judgment came swiftly and instantly because he did not give glory to God. Josephus said it took him five days of agonizing pain before he died. God, in this passage, you see the glory of God, the power of God, the mission of God, and he's removing roadblocks. God said, hey, Herod, that's quite enough. You are not a God, and it took him five days to die. Now look what it says here in verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. That's kind of the key scripture. That's why um, Luke is writing the book of Acts, and you maybe have heard that a few different times but the word of God increased and multiplied. Like there's no stopping the kingdom of God. There's no stopping the word of God. Herod gets in the way. He begins to impede the mission. He tries to take glory on himself and God goes and removes the roadblock. And then verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose, name, whose other name was Mark. Now this is kind of an important passage because this is like the hinge point of the book of Acts, all right? The first 12 chapters, all the way through 12, it's, it's chronicling the, the church primarily in Jerusalem and Peter's ministry with some of the groundwork for Saul and for Paul's ministry. Now this is the hinge point. Chapter 13 and beyond the rest of the book is Saul's ministry out to the Gentile world, and this is kind of like the hinging here. Saul and Barnabas return back from Antioch, for, excuse me, from Jerusalem. They were sent from Antioch, if you remember a chapter ago. There was a famine in the land and they were given food and supplies and so they brought the food and the supplies to the church in Jerusalem. Now they're getting back, coming back and there's a young man named John Mark with them. John was his Hebrew name and Mark was his Greek name. John Mark or John whose name was Mark or uh, you know, John whose surname was Mark. His name is John Mark. Interesting to know he is the one who wrote the second gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So this, this guy is an important player and you'll see him later on too. So this is kind of the close of, of everything that's happening, happened in Jerusalem and now it's, it's moving towards Paul's ministry out to the Gentile world. It's interesting, just, just kind of look at the contrast here. Herod is withholding food. He's withholding food in an attempt to leverage and control while the apostles are freely giving it away in a time of scarcity. Herod is accepting worship and acting as though his words are really the words of God. The people are chanting the voice of a God and not of a man and his voice is silenced, and then verse 24, but the word of God increases and multiplies. It's, it's an intentional contrast there. So 
Okay, so what do we do? This is kind of a crazy story, right? We look at this. Herod gets in God's way. He impedes the mission. He takes glory on himself. God's like, boink, you're out. He dies. He gets eaten by worms. What does that mean for me? How do we, how do we like, interpret this today? Well, here's the big idea. I just kind of want to look through this lens today as we talk about how this message lands on us. It's this. God's mission cannot be stopped and his glory cannot be stolen. There's nothing that can stop the mission of God. There's there's nothing that will ever prevail against the church. And God's glory cannot be stolen. Now, those can sound like really churchy words, like the glory of God, let's do it for the glory of God, who's gonna glorify God. And and that can become very Christianese churchy language if we don't understand what we're saying. So let's bring some definition. What What is the mission of God? If his mission cannot be stopped, what is it? God's mission is the salvation and the redemption of mankind. That comes through the gospel being preached, through the church, through churches being planted, and it's, it produces healing and reconciliation. You see, sin has, has broken, uh, has destroyed our relationship with God, and because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we can have reconciliation and a restored relationship with God, and that's his mission, is to bring that message to the ends of the earth, to save and to redeem and to heal. That's the mission of God. What's the glory of God? Well, it's hard in human words to talk about the glory of God because it's it's beyond our comprehension, but we'll we'll take a shot at it. God's glory defined it, it speaks of his beauty, it speaks of his perfection, his majesty, his power, his ways, and his wisdom. It's like all of who he is, all of who he is. This is how um, author and and speaker Paul Tripp says, "In in everything he is, In everything that he does, God is greater than human description. Every attribute and action of God is stunningly beautiful in every way. Each characteristic of God and every accomplishment from his hand is totally perfect. That is what we mean when we talk about God's glory. So the glory of God, it belongs to him alone. Nobody can take that. Nobody can steal that. We live lives for the sake of glorifying God because he deserves it. So there's a couple takeaways in this message. A couple things I just want to look at and go, okay, so what do I do? What do I not do? What do, I, what do we see in this passage that really hits us? Here's the first one. Don't be a glory thief. Don't be a glory thief. The glory belongs to God alone. Herod, in this, in this passage, he's trying to stop the mission of God. He's trying to, trying to cut off the head of the church by killing James, by imprisoning Peter, He's trying to impede the mission and God's like, nope, not gonna do that. And then later on, he begins to take glory on himself as if he were God. And that's ultimately what costs him his life. This this whole story, I mean, let's just kind of zoom back and think about this. This is really a hot mess, is it not? You've got Herod who wants to be God and he's, he's, he's like taking on the glory on himself and people are worshiping him and he's like, come on, you know. He's out there in the sun in his silver trying to, trying to like be super glorious and God strikes him dead. It would have been a little bit embarrassing, you know. Herod is, is a glory hog, he's a glory thief. You know, I love in scripture that it gives us examples of great leadership, godly, righteous, just upright, full of integrity leadership like we see in David and like we see in Joseph and like we see in, in Saul and, and the, the apostles. And then you got Herod, and he is an example of terrible, terrible leadership. I love that the Bible doesn't hide it, that it doesn't, it doesn't like fluff it up, but this is exactly what happened. Now let's just kind of take a closer look. Can we just put Herod under the microscope for a minute? We can see a few things that we can kind of piece together. Earlier in chapter 12, we see that 
The reason that he imprisoned Peter was because when he killed James, it, it was so pleasing to the Jews. He's like, oh, those guys like that. I gotta win some more points with them. If I can win that crowd, it gives me more power, it gives me more sway, more influence. So he's people-pleasing. He's, he's playing a political game, so he imprisons Peter with the intent to kill him as well. And it's all rooted in this fear of man, needing people's approval, playing the game, leveraging power. It's the abuse of the authority he was given. Here we see that he was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And what does he do? He, he begins to leverage the resources. He's like, I'll let them know who's in charge. I'm gonna, I'm gonna clamp off their lifeline and they're gonna know who their God is. And you can put this together and you can see that, that Herod is very much an insecure leader. And he's, and he's full of fear and he's people pleasing. And you know, you don't have to go too far. Maybe you've been around someone like this. Maybe even if you look internally at yourself, you go, man, I have some of those traits in the way that I use my position of authority. But maybe you've, you've been under that. If you've ever been under somebody who's, who's fearful and insecure, it's not fun because they do this. They, they leverage power and they take things away and they're like, I'm gonna control you with this by withholding that. And they're always angry and it's like when they can't control a situation, they turn to anger because they can't control. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It's awful. That is not godly leadership at all and Herod is exhibiting that. And so he's, he's an absolute mess. He's abusing his power and, and he's angry and he's leveraging the situation. So that takes us to a place of, of looking now internally. Like, am I, am I kind of like Herod in this? Do I misuse the authority God's given me? Do I have insecurity and fear of man? Is it, do I get angry when I can't control a situation? It's a cause for a pause to, to look deeply and to evaluate, like, what's the real reason why I'm angry with my kids or why I'm angry with my wife or why I'm angry with my employees? Like, what's the real reason? And often it's, it's rooted in these things. Anger is, is self-glorifying. Herod was all about himself. The last thing he cared about was glorifying God. Herod was glorifying himself. He was a glory thief. Now let's kind of look at the other side of this. So Herod, he's a disaster. He's a terrible leader. He's doing stupid things. He's receiving the praise and the worship of man. But, but the people, they're worshiping and glorifying him. Like, what are they thinking, you know? They resorted to flattery. Flattery, like I said earlier, is it's, it's an attempt to get something from somebody. Very different from honor or encouragement, which is an attempt to give something to someone. Flattery, the motive behind it is you have something that I want, and so I'm gonna kind of butter you up and just worship you in a sense so that I can get from you what I want. When I, when I read this, I can't help but see myself in the passage and, and think through, through errors and mistakes that I've made. You know, this, this truth stands out to me, it's this. When you need something from someone, when like you need it from them, whether it's their approval or resource or they're okay or whatever, like when you need that from somebody, they can control you by withholding it. You notice that? Like, I gotta be okay, you gotta make sure, if you're not okay with me and you're not affirming me, I'm, I'm all wrought up and I'm not at peace and, and I need your approval. And, and what this does is it reveals, it, it reveals the idols and how we, how we accidentally fall into these things without even realizing it. But when somebody needs something, or when, when you need something from someone else, they can control you by withholding it. Be mindful, look around, take inventory of your life and go, where am I, 
letting people control me? Where am I not worshiping God and giving glory to God? Where am I in, in, in my life like fearing people and, and I have to just kind of keep them happy so that I can get from them what I want? That's what's happening here. Let's flatter him. So we have to ask the question now, if Herod is a glory thief and they're giving glory to, the, to a human being who's a sin-fallen human being, what are some ways that, that we live for our own glory? And there's, there's overt ways. I mean, there's, there's people that it's like, man, that guy's just all about himself. <laughs> every story he tells, everything he posts, it's just all about me, 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 me. And there's overt ways that people can be very self-glorifying. But I would challenge you this morning to look a little deeper because we, have, we really do have a glory problem. Each one of us do. And, and inadvertently, at times, we take glory on ourselves without even realizing what we're doing. Let me just point out a few ways maybe that uh, we've, we've wanted and received glory when we should have given it to God. It, it, can, it can show up in social media. Like, what's the real reason that you posted that picture? What's the real reason that you commented? Was it about you or was it to give glory to God? You know, when you're talking with somebody or maybe debating an issue, do you have to like over-talk them? Is it like you've got to make sure that your opinions are, are, are like the thing and, and that they hear you? It's like that's about self-glory. If we can't listen and seek to understand people and have a, have a conversation, but we're always fighting, like my opinions have to be heard, that is self-glorifying. That's because we're internally, we're looking for glory for ourselves. We can do this with our gifts and our talents, the, the skills that God's given us the very things that he's given us to glorify him, to worship him, if we're not careful, we can take those things and it can become about making me feel good or self-glorification. This for sure happens in our, our possessions, um, our, our homes, the clothes that we wear, the prestige that we're trying to, to present to everyone. Maybe it's, maybe it's achievement. Maybe you're like, I've got I've to get to that point because then I'm really somebody. And I gotta do that because then I'll be important. That, those things are, are self-glorification. And we're not, we're not called to self-glory, we're called to glorify God. If you're too good to serve in that role that's like behind the scenes and, and nobody sees it and it's like, it's not glorious enough. It's not in front, you're not having, nobody's telling you, hey, you're doing such an awesome job. Maybe the problem is that you're living for your own glory and not for the glory of God. Upstaging somebody else's story. Have you ever caught yourself I know I've caught myself doing that, where someone's telling their story, and you're like, oh, that's awesome, but wait, but here's my story, right? My story's better than yours. Yeah, that you don't even know until you've been me for 30 seconds. You're like, you don't even know. Let me tell my story. That's upstaging. That's like, I've got to have the glory, like the competing, the comparing, the, the needing to win. I'm probably guilty of all of these, just, just to be clear. Pastors uh, inflating the numbers there was like 150 people. They're like, no, there was like 20. Yeah. No, I think I counted like 150. No, there was 20. But why do we do that? Because we, we want to exaggerate. We want to like make it more glorious than it is because it's not, the truth is not good enough. We have to, we have to get glory for ourselves. Reminds me of a, an old commercial. This is like my favorite commercial of all time. I don't even know what they were selling, but I remember the commercial vividly. Maybe you'll remember it as I describe it. It was this, this group of about five or six guys. They're at their five-year high school reunion. And you know how like the stories, they just get more glorious as the years go by, right? Nobody was ever as big as us or as fast as us or hit as hard as us. Like that was when football was a man's sport. 
Today it's for sissies, right? No, it's still the same as it has been. So they're, they're sitting around the table. They're at their like five-year uh, high school reunion, and they're talking about how Tim kicked the game-winning field goal. Do you guys remember this song, this, song, this, this commercial? And, and they're, they're, like, they're showing like a, like, a, like a B-roll footage. of It was like a 20-yard field goal, just kind of a quick chip shot. Time expires. They win the game, and it was like the glorious, like we won the conference championship or whatever. Right? They're discussing the glory days. They come back to their 20-year reunion. The story now is much more glorious. It was a 40-yard field goal, and it was in the rain and the mud, right? And he got tackled as he kicked it, but it still flew through the uprights. They come back to their 40-year reunion, and it was a 60-yard field goal in the snow, and he was on crutches, right? You know how the stories just get more glorious as the years go by? Why is that, though? Exaggerating stories, it's, it's a subtle form of like, I want the glory. I want to take what belongs to God for myself. Now, how do we do that? And I would pray and ask even this week, that the Holy Spirit would, even in these moments, just bring conviction and discernment. Like you gotta ask yourself the question, look in the mirror and go, now why did I, no, what's the real reason that I said that? What's the real reason that I did that? And the Holy Spirit will begin to separate that out and show you like those areas of your life where you're going, hey, you're living for your glory there. I want you to surrender that and live for God's glory. So, first one, don't be a glory thief. God's mission can't be stopped. His glory can't be stolen. And the second, the second takeaway uh, would follow very clearly from the first. It's just this, don't be a glory thief, but deflect all glory to God. You know, as human beings, there's, there's no other created being that loves glorious, dazzling things like human beings do, right? And that's not even inherently wrong. I mean, God created the world to be glorious, he created for, for us to enjoy his glory. But we're the only beings of all creation. Like, I've not yet seen a deer run across the road with his Jordans on. Haven't seen that. Because deer don't live for their own glory. They don't even have any idea what glory is. But as human beings, we understand glory. I was out this week just uh, as I was in prayer and kind of just working on this message and just praying. I was out atop a dune on Lake Michigan. Now let me tell you, I've lived in Lake Michigan, I've lived in Lake Michigan. I've grown up in West Michigan by Lake Michigan for, my whole, for almost my whole life, aside from a few years. And there's still something about it, I don't know, but like when I'm on top of the dune and I feel the breeze coming off the lake and there's the sunshine and the water is just like glittering blue and, and there's the, the waves are crashing, there's just something about like all of those boats out there that I wish I was on one of those boats that's just so glorious, you know what I mean? It doesn't get old. It's awesome. But that's because God made it that way. It's supposed to be awe-inspiring. It's supposed to be like, wow, this is amazing when the sun sets and you go, the, just the glory and the grandeur of God. It's not the glory that's wrong. It's who or what we attribute the glory to. That's the error. That's the mistake. We give glory to the wrong things and the wrong person. We should be able to go out in nature and, and just be immersed and absorbed in God's glory because it's amazing. Herod, in this picture, is stealing the glory for himself. He's desiring worship. And God's like, that's not gonna fly. Contrast that with the apostles. I think about just a few chapters earlier, back in chapter 10. Do you remember Peter's 
interaction with Cornelius. Remember that? God goes, I want you to go see this guy, Cornelius. Cornelius, he shows up in his house, and immediately Cornelius falls down and begins to worship Peter. And Peter's like, come on, yeah. No, Peter doesn't do that at all. Peter's like, get up. No, he's like, no, 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 no. We don't do that. We don't do that. Get up. He goes, I'm just a man. I don't deserve to be worshiped. I don't deserve glory. And he's an excellent example of, of deflecting glory to God while Herod is like taking the glory on himself. You know, our vision at Christ Church, if you see it, it's on the, the bulkhead there above the, the main entry doors to the worship center. It says this, we exist to glorify God for the fulfillment of the Great Commission or to make disciples, to make fully devoted followers of Jesus. We exist to glorify God primarily. And like we were talking about that with our some of our, our leaders and elders the other day, and like, man, we really, really love that. Love that that's what our vision statement leads with. We wanna glorify God because what it does is it puts us in the place of, of, of him-focused, not self-focused. You know, this is actually very, very freeing, though, when we, when we settle into this reality that it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. It's about his glory. That's what God calls us to, and there's a reason he calls us to that. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, but look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He said this, whatever you do, so wh- whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, if you want to circle that in your Bible, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's here talking about eating and drinking. He's like, you can do that to the glory of God. So how, how do we practically, like, yes, okay, I want to do that. I want to live for God's glory. We sing that, we sing the song, but I don't know how to do that. I don't know what that means. How do we practically glorify God in our lives? Well, I think that the first one kind of, to me, in verse 25, that just jumps off the page there to me is that these, these apostles, Saul and Barnabas, they're just bringing food to the church in Jerusalem. They're serving in a very unglorious way. They're like the Grubhub guy at the door, right? DoorDash, like they were the original Uber Eats guys. They, they delivered the food. It's not glorious at all. What they're doing is they're like, hey, we're just gonna care for the practical needs of the church. Nobody's applauding. I'm sure that people were thankful. Nobody's like, man, those guys are so awesome. They just did their service in an unglorious way. And we're called to serve that way as well. Can you serve God in the mundane? Can you serve him in the obscure? Can you serve him when nobody's looking? That's a great way to glorify God. Because God, I'm doing this for you. Whether anybody ever sees or affirms it. You know, like he, he mentions here, f- through food or drink, we know you can glorify God at a meal. Like this is kind of incredible. Think about this. With, with what we eat, we can glorify God. Now if we just kind of like, like mouth through it, you know, I don't know that that's glorifying God. But picture this, you thank God, you pray before you, like, thank you God for this, this food and it's incredible. You know, we, we recently got a dog and it kind of amazes me if you get dogs or cats, they eat the same thing every single day. Would that not be a little boring? You get your dog food for breakfast, you get your dog food for dinner, same thing every, there's no glory in that at all, right? And for us as humans, though, God has given us such a variety of of tastes and textures and colors, and all of it can be enjoyed, and we can do that for his glory. So just think about that the next time you sit down today. Maybe you fire up the barbecue, be like, in Jesus' name, Lord, glory be to God. Eat your burger. (laughs) You can glorify God 
through, through food, we can glorify God through music, the music that we listen to. We can glorify God in how we, how we study and how we continue even long after the college years that you're a lifelong learner, always learning. That's glorifying to God when you approach with humility and you go, God, I never quite, God, I'm always learning. And you know what? The more we learn, the more we realize we don't know hardly anything. I used to think I knew a lot. Now I'm like, I don't know much of anything. That's glorifying to God to be a lifelong, humble learner in the way that you play, in the way that you, you have recreation with your family, glorifying to God in the way that you worship when in a few moments we're going to begin to worship God again. And I would challenge you to go to a new place today. Like let, let go of like the stiffness and just give it to God. Be like I'm glorifying you in my worship. We can glorify God in our parenting. That's a challenge. Ever had some of those non-glorious parenting moments where you were like, I'm not sure that I said that because I was trying to glorify God. It wasn't real glorifying to God. And the way that we're patient and the way that we're loving, the way that we're firm with truth and the way that we, we bring uh, order and the way that we lead. We do that in our marriage. Think about your marriage. Are you glorifying God in your marriage? The things that you're saying, how you're conducting yourself, Ask, is this, is this bringing glory to God? Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. What about in how you give and how you serve that can bring glory to God? This wholehearted, like whatever you, your hand finds to do, do it with your whole heart as unto the Lord. In the way that you care for yourself, the Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We can glorify God in our bodies. How about your work, your skill? Are, are you excellent in what you do and do you have integrity with your work? Because if you do, you'll stand out, you'll shine and it'll be glorifying to God in how you work, doing an excellent job. Essentially, the way that we, we practically glorify God in our lives comes down to just how we steward everything he's given us. I'm just, I'm stewarding everything, God, because I'm doing it for your glory. God's mission can't be stopped and his glory can't be stolen. Now, I want to just kind of land this here because God calls us to live lives, that, you know, as we see here, Herod, like self-glory, standing in the way of God's mission, and God removes him as a roadblock. We're called to not be glory thieves, to deflect glory to God. Like, here's some ways we can do that. But like, why is that? Why is that such a big deal? Why does God require that we give glory to him? Well, the first answer is kind of obvious because he's the only one who's worthy of it. I mean, honestly, like, no human being can stand and receive glory and honor. We just don't deserve it. We're broken. We're sinful. We're the problem. Jesus is the answer. So we, we live in a way to glorify him because of who he is, because of his glory, his power, and his ways, and his majesty, his perfection. We worship him. We give glory to him because of who he is. Secondly, though, this we discover as we begin to do that and we, we begin to realize other areas and other people or other things that we've given glory to, other things that we've put in the place of God, whether it be our, our identity or our worth, our value, our calling, like when we glory in the wrong things, those things become idols. They become objects of worship that ultimately enslave us when we're looking for our worth, value, identity, purpose, calling, in any other area except in God, it will always lead to enslavement and idolatry. 
So God calls us to glorify him, not because he's like, I just need you, God, because I'm not feeling good about myself today. I need you guys to give me some glory. When we give God the glory, it, it writes our lives. It actually sets us free. The, the, the giving God the glory is for us to refocus, to refix our attention on him. It's best for us, and it brings freedom to our souls. So in these next few minutes, we're gonna do that. And I want, I want, again, I wanna challenge you as we sing this song, go to a new place today. Let go a little bit and, and worship and glorify God for who he is. Let's, let's do this and let's think, even through this song, Holy Spirit, would you, would you bring conviction of the areas where we're living for self-glory and not glorifying God? Lord, help us not to be glory thieves, but to deflect glory to you. So Lord, in these, these next few moments, as we, as we worship, as we honor you, as we give glory to you, to whom it is due, I pray that you would be magnified in this place, Lord, corporately, but also individually. Would you, would you meet each person where they are? Would you, would you show them the areas of their lives with which you're, you're saying, hey, I want you to give me the glory there. I want you to worship me in that, to, to, to surrender in, in a sweet healing and a sweet freedom. Father, help us to, to see ourselves in this passage today. So we praise you, we worship you, we give honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And then let's stand to our feet and worship.